Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Burke and Hare. You may have heard of these two blokes, two famous Scottish murderers who in, uh, in 1828, they killed 16, at least 16 people in order, right, to sell their corpses to anatomists. Now, you may have heard, as I say, of these two, uh, and even, but even if you've not heard of, of, of William Her- uh, Burke and William Hare, you have probably heard of body snatchers, right? People who, resurrectionists, as they were also known, people who would dig up graves, right, and exhume the corpses uh, so they could be then sold to uh, to the medical you know medical profession or the, the to, to anatomists and other scientists uh, so they could be dissected uh, so we could you know learn learn about what's going on uh, inside uh, inside the human body. Well, Burke and Hare they came to the frighteningly logical conclusion that they could cut out the middleman here and rather than you know dig up dead bodies, just create dead bodies of their own by murdering people and then sold them directly to the doctors. So, I mean, what ingenuity, really? What what industry from these blokes? I mean, it's an absolutely wild story. I'll tell you what, there is, uh, there's, also, there's all the stuff you crave. There's all the content you crave in this, in this episode. There's intrigue, there's betrayal, there's blood and guts, and of course, I'm sure, as you have no doubt already guessed, there is plenty of horrible murder, so don't worry about that. That's coming your way. Um, there are a lot of fictionalised accounts of this tale. Uh, a lot of them have been made in you know, popular media or whatever else uh, for, for, for a long, long time, um, which I guess, I mean, you know, I, I was I was going to talk about how, you know, today we're more or less going to stick to the facts, but it's interesting that uh, there are a lot of fictionalised accounts of this because you just don't have to, like, it's that sensational. You don't really need to fictionalise what happened in this story. It is already you know, sensationalized enough that it doesn't need the extra oomph, but there are, you know, there are films, radio plays, whatever else that have been made, uh, and books and whatever else that have been made about this thing here. Um, but interestingly, the story itself, uh, it, it has a lot of uh, historical, uh, there's, there's a, it illuminates some some pretty interesting historical issues, right, that are at stake during this uh, during this period in the early 19th century, particularly in the realm of science and anatomy, right? We'll, we'll talk about this. Um, access to fresh corpses for dissection extremely limited under the law, and so people would go to quite some lengths in order to secure them, uh, you know, illicitly, as you'll as you'll find out soon enough. But and and Burke and Hare they profited very nicely off their little murder racket for quite some time, although uh, it, it all came unstuck eventually in quite a spectacular fashion too, as uh, as we'll get across. It's a ripper tale. Uh, before we begin, I, I do want to thank Dave Lawrence. Uh, thanks very much, Davo, for sending. Uh, this in as a topic suggestion. Good on you, Dave, mate. Uh, I've been very entertaining to learn about these blokes, and and well and truly right up the alley of half us history. So thanks so much, Dave Lawrence, for the for the suggestion. But let's get underway. Let's get underway. Bit of Scottish, Scottish history here for everyone to enjoy. No worries. Off we go. So we're going all the way back, all the way back here to the early nineteenth century, as I said. Um, but before actually talking about Birkin here in eighteen twenty eight, we've got a bit of stage setting to do here. We're going to go back a little bit, little bit further. We're going to talk about Edinburgh. At this time, right now, this is this is where the story uh, takes place in, in the Scottish capital of Edinburgh, and Edinburgh in the early nineteenth century, it was at the forefront. It was at the forefront of anatomical science, right? Uh, many of the world's leading anatomists uh, lived and worked in Edinburgh. The city had a reputation as one of the best places on earth uh, to study the discipline. 
Uh, and there were many notable uh, anatomist pioneers that were based in Edinburgh at the time of our story, again, due to its you know, illustrious reputation, the fact that it was known along with, the, with some other cities like Leiden and a couple of other places as well. Again, just because there were just, just, just a concentration of, of leading figures in the field who had all you know, assembled uh, in the Scottish capital. But with this reputation, with this illustrious reputation, uh, came an interesting and rather unfortunate consequence as well. Because anatomical study, of course, right, it necessitates a fresh and reliable source of, well, I mean, bloody dead bodies, mate. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They just want a lot of dead bodies, right? And to complicate matters further, Scottish law at the time held that only uh, the only corpses that could be used, right, for study and dissection were those that came from dead prisoners, uh, people who had killed themselves, or, weirdly, foundlings and orphans which is a lot i guess i don't know like not necessarily a lot of corpses you would hope but certainly a lot to like process that's a, 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 a anyway um uh anatomists as i say they've been given uh, you know access to the corpses of uh, of dead prisoners and this included of course criminals condemned to death but in 1823, right, there was the Judgment of Death Act, and this enormously reduced the number of crimes that carried the death penalty, and with that reduction came to a reduction in the supply of these cadavers that was coming from, uh, from condemned prisoners. So all of this combined meant that cadavers were in constantly short supply, right? And anatomists of all kinds were stooping to um, less than legal means, shall we say, to acquire them. So, body snatching became an illicit profession for the criminal underclass. This is, you know, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about grave robbers, people who would dig up and exhume freshly buried corpses and then sell them illegally to anatomists. So, you know, your old bloody, I don't know, your uncle dies or whatever and he gets buried and then a couple of days later, or even maybe even that night, actually, you know, there are these grave robbers, these body snatchers, they're heading down to the graveyard with their uh, with their, their shovel and their pickaxe and they're, they're digging him straight up and, and taking him off to bloody doctor whoever at the university, right, and, uh, and making a very tidy profit from doing so. But here's the funny part. Right, these grave robbers, these body snatchers, when they went and dug up a corpse, it wasn't actually illegal to steal the body itself. It wasn't illegal to steal the cadaver because it technically didn't have an owner and therefore wasn't property that could be stolen. Right, so it wasn't actually illegal to pick pick up a literal dead body and cart it out of the cemetery. That wasn't what was illegal. Instead, it was illegal to disturb a grave. And that's how a lot of people got done for it. And hilariously, as well, I really like this, it was also illegal to steal things from a dead body, right? So grave robbery in its most, you know, in, in the sort of traditional sense, taking taking jewellery or whatever off, else off a corpse, that was illegal. But stealing the body itself was not. So if you dug off, if you dug up and carted off a corpse... You could be done for stealing, like, the clothes that it was wearing, but not for the corpse itself, right? Which I just think is just wild. Anyway, this black market trade in cadavers, it's flourishing in Edinburgh in the early 19th century. You make a tidy sum. You could make, uh, you can make quite a fair bit of money uh, from selling these bodies here. The, the, interestingly, the price uh, was different depending on the time of year, right? So in the summer, you'd only get around eight pounds for a, for a fresh corpse, whereas in winter, when the corpses didn't decay as quickly... Uh, you could get up to £10, right? Um, and, and seeing as £10 in 1828 was worth over £1,000 in today's money, you can see why people were willing to take the risk. Like, this is, this is a lot of... This is not, you know, this is not chump change we're talking about here. Grave robbing got so bad in the early 19th century in Edinburgh that by the time our story begins in 1828, right, people were, were using all sorts of, of, of these, like, 
ridiculous techniques to prevent their relatives from being dug up after burial. So there was boring stuff as well. There's boring stuff like paying guards to watch over the grave for a while. And some cemeteries even built watchtowers to keep an eye on things. But there were some other things that people did that were absolutely brilliant, right? They'd bury coffins in cages so the body snatchers couldn't get them. They'd dig up, they'd, you know, they'd dig up the, the, the grave and then this... this there'd be this this coffin like locked in a cage like some kind of wild animal they couldn't get to it right or my favorite this is brilliant they would hire not buy but hire enormous stone slabs that would be laid over the grave only until enough time had passed for the corpse to have decayed beyond its scientific usefulness. So you, you, you weren't buying this slab. You weren't leaving it there forever. You just pop it there until, you know, grandma had sort of decomposed properly and then the slab would go back to its owner. Imagine making a living off of hiring out a huge stone slab. Never mind bloody money for old rope. What about money for a huge stone slab? Absolutely brilliant. I'll tell you what, so, so smart. Anyway, the important part is this. It was getting harder and harder to exhume and steal bodies as people, you know, sought to defend the graves of their loved ones with these various techniques. And it's that, coupled with Edinburgh's insatiable need for fresh corpses, that we lift the curtain on Burke and Hare. So, we've established Edinburgh, one of the centres for anatomical study in Europe, needs a steady supply of cadavers, becoming harder and harder to source them illegally. And this is where our two, I'm not going to say heroes, because they're definitely not that, just villains, straight up villains. This is where our two villains uh, take centre stage, right? It's where they enter the story. Because these two, as I say, they ended up deciding that they were going to take a much more direct approach to sourcing these corpses, and so just murdered a bunch of people rather than go to the trouble of, you know, digging up a grave. So let's meet these two. Uh, William Burke, first of all, he was he was born in Ernie in rural Ireland in 1792. As a teenager, he joined the British Army uh, and then he got married and settled down in County Mayo for a while. But in 1818, he abandoned his first wife, moved to Scotland, where he remarried, this time to a woman whose name was Helen MacDougall. And he became a cobbler. Uh, he eventually moved to Edinburgh with MacDougall in 1827. And uh, it, was, uh, it, it was around that time uh, that he met and became friends with William Hare. Uh, they actually moved into a boarding house that Hare ran with his wife, a woman named Margaret, right? And as for William Hare, also born in Ireland, although we're less sure where, probably somewhere in what is today Northern Ireland. But we, don't, uh, we don't know exactly where he was born. We also don't know the exact year that he was born. Estimates range from 1792 all the way through to 1804. So quite a range there. In any case, at some point, he also moved from Ireland to Scotland, and by the mid-1820s, he was living in Edinburgh, and it was there that he took over the running of a boarding house um, after it's thought he married the widow of its former owner. Um, so this, this woman that he's married to, Margaret, now Margaret Hare, after they got married. So these two, they met in 1827, as I say, and Burke the Cobbler moved in to Hare's boarding house, and the two men lived there uh, with their respective wives as our story begins. And you know, they were, it, it seems, for all intents and purposes, quite good mates. And, uh, you know, whether that's the case at the end of the story, well, remains to be seen. But uh, to begin with, you know, they, they get on very well. It's not just sort of a landlord-tenant relationship. They did seem to be uh, to be quite good friends. So the first chapter of our story here begins on the 29th of November, 1827, when uh, one of the other lodgers in Hare's boarding house goes and drops dead, right? So there's Hare, he's managing this boarding house, Burke lives there as well, and this other lodger dies, right? Now, Hare pissed off about this. The lodger owed him rent before he died, and uh, now, obviously, there wasn't much, much chance of the debt being paid, and so Hare, he's buddy hopping mad, he's not having a great time at all, and he goes to Burke, and he whinges about him, right? And Burke, Burke looks at this uh, this whole situation, and goes, oh, I, th I think I've got an idea here, right? He comes up with this idea to profit off of uh, off of this uh, this bit of misfortune. He goes, 
mate, here, listen. Think about how much all these bloody anatomists, right? These scientists, whatever. They need corpses, don't they, right? And here we are with a real freshie, mate. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? And here goes, mate, I think I am. And so they hatch a plan to take this body, this freshly do, you know, freshly deceased body, and go and flog it to someone at the University of Edinburgh. So the local parish delivered a coffin to put the body in, but instead of doing that, Birkin here actually filled the coffin with wood and hid the body instead under a bed. And once the coffin had been car- carted off and presumably buried, right, uh, Birkin here, they used the cover of darkness to sneak, to, to, to sneak up to the University of Edinburgh with this corpse. And once they get to the university, they asked for the famous anatomist Alexander Monroe, who's, uh, who was, of course, the son of the famous anatomist Alexander Monroe, uh, who, of course, was the son of the famous anatomist Alexander Monroe. This is quite another story, but there were three generations of Alexander Monroes who were all anatomists and all professors of anatomy at Edinburgh University, right, covering the years from 1720 to 1859. So 140 years almost, right? I mean, it's not a bad bit of trivia. It's not a bad bit of trivia. The name of the Professor of Anatomy at the University of Edinburgh from 1720 to 1859 was Alexander Munro. That's, I mean, that's true. That's a true statement, right? Three of them in a row, grandfather, father, son, uh, all occupied that position. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you could, I mean, there are a lot of names. Alexander's very powerful. I'm not taking look, any Alexander's listening. listening. Great name, 10 out of 10. But three generations of the same bloke, the same name, doing the same thing, having the same... I don't know about that, mate. I don't know about that. Anyway, they didn't end up actually meeting... Alexander Munro, they, uh, they they didn't get put in touch with him. Instead, they were given directions to a different bloke, a bloke whose name was Dr. Robert Knox. Now, Knox was one of the city's preeminent anatomists. He may not it may as not uh, he may not have been as famous as Munro, but he was uh, he was someone to whom the the discipline still owed a great deal at the time. He was uh, he was known as one of the leading anatomy lecturers, and uh, he had quite a reputation. He would give these dissection uh, demonstrations twice a day uh, to to you know huge, relatively speaking, huge crowds. Uh, so he's Real, I mean, you know, quite aside from anything else, he's really getting through them. He's really getting through them. People come from far and wide to watch and learn from the good doctor. Well, I say the good doctor, not even close to being true. If anyone knows anything about Robert Knox, will know that that is not true. Um, because, and, and I mean, look, you know, case in point, when true, when two strange men approached him one night with a fresh corpse to sell. He didn't think twice about buying it off them. Knox happily snapped up this cadaver. He paid seven pounds and ten shillings over to Birkin Hare for it. Not bad for a night's work. Quite, quite an amount of money back then. And on the way out as well, on the way out, these two men, they were told by one of Knox's assistants that Knox would be glad to see them again when they had another to dispose of. I mean... We talked about grave robbing and everything else. So, I mean, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that someone eventually took this idea to its natural conclusion and started acquiring corpses directly from the source, as it were. But in any case, Burke and Hare, they left Knox's office that night with heavy pockets jingling with riches, as well as, quite probably, the germination of a dastardly new idea in their heads. And this, well, after this, not too long after this, was when the horrible murders began. We know a lot of what happened next. Um, however, we don't know all the details and the particulars with 100% accuracy, as the accounts that emerged later had some significant discrepancies, as you'll discover. And there, there is a, you know, there's a good reason to believe that at least some of the stuff that you're about to hear is maybe not 100% accurate, but it is, it is more or less the best guess that we have at what took place based on the available sources. And, and, and you'll understand why uh, as we conclude the story. But for now, let's get stuck in to these murders here. And, and we can piece together a general idea of what took place, even, even again, 
even if it's not completely accurate to the finer details. Anyway, obviously sometime after this nighttime visit to Knox, right, Burke and Hare started to think about how they could replicate the the quite significant windfall that they received. And, and they came to an understanding, it's thought, because Burke went back to cobbling, Hare uh, went back to managing his, uh, his boarding house, but it wasn't long until push came to shove, because sometime in either January or February 1828, a couple of months after they delivered the first corp to, corpse to Knox there, a miller named Joseph, who uh, was staying in Hare's boarding house, now, this Joseph fellow, he was crook as a dog. He's full of a fever. He's having a terrible time, he is, and uh, Hare is not a fan of it. He's worried that having a sick lodger is going to be bad for business, and uh, rather than, I don't know, just kicking him out or something like that, he and Burke instead came together to deal with this problem in an altogether rather different way. They approached Joseph with a bottle of whiskey, and they plied him with booze, right? They got him on the sauce until he was delirious, uh, not just with the fever, but also with, you know, just complete abject drunkenness and once this poor bastard was falling down drunk they uh they they chucked him down the ground uh burke lay across his torso and hair smothered his face with a pillow so burke laying across joseph both prevented him from escaping obviously with the weight of his body and also forced the air out of his lungs and made it more or less impossible for him to breathe in and today with you know, modern forensic investigation technology, we would, you know, be able to look at a corpse like that and say, well, of course, you know, someone's been murdered, they've been asphyxiated, they've been suffocated, whatever else. But back in 1828, this left basically no discernible evidence of a murder behind. So it left what was, in every respect, a pristine corpse that appeared to have just dropped dead, which is perfect, of course, for the purpose that, uh, you know, they, they wanted to put it to. And now... These two nefarious murderers, they're ready to profit from their grim deed. Once more, they took this corpse uh, to Knox, who paid them now a full £10 for it. Again, that's over a grand. Uh, seemingly asking no questions about, you know, from where the corpse originated or anything else like that. He was happy to turn a blind eye, take the, take the body and, and be done with it. And this was just the beginning. Given the success that they'd had now with actually taking someone's life... They were obviously uh, spurred on, both Burke and Hare, because they began to murder people like there was no tomorrow. They killed a salt seller named Abigail Simpson and an Englishman whose name has been lost to history, although we're not sure in which order these murders took place. But they were both very similar to the first, right? They filled their victims full of booze, full of whiskey, uh, suffocated them in the same way they'd done Joseph with Burke lying on the chest and, um, and Hare suffocating them. And uh, then stuffed the corpses into a tea chest and took them to Knox. And I don't know what Knox was thinking here. But again, he didn't ask any questions. Just gave them £10 for each of the bodies and sent them on their way. He did even compliment them on the freshness of the corpses, which is... It's not great, Knox, mate, to be honest. Like, where do you think these corpses are coming from? Like, what, what do you think's going on here? This is... He, yeah, I mean, he was trying to, we'll talk about this more later, he was trying to sort of keep up this air of plausible deniability, but he must have known that something funny was going on. Anyway, after these two, the next victim was an old lady whose name again has been lost. Uh, she was invited to the boarding house by Hare's wife, Margaret, uh, before Hare gave her, again, enough whiskey to put her to sleep, uh, and then suffocated her while she slept, before being joined by Burke to transport the uh, the corpse to the ever-receptive Knox. Thanks, boys. Here's another £10. See you two, uh, you know, see, see us again soon, I hope. Um, next up, another woman named, uh, this one named Mary Patterson. Uh, Burke was out in the lash one night when he met Patterson and her friend Janet Brown, and all three of them pissed as chooks. He ended up inviting them uh, back home with him. 
Now, Patterson passed out at the kitchen table and Burke, you know, he's still sitting there, continuing to talk with Brown. But then Burke's wife, McDougal, bursts into the room and accuses him of playing away, having an affair with these women that he's brought home, right? Now, Brown, didn't, you know, not realising that Burke was married, she hurries off. She goes, bloody hell, I'm out of here. And lucky for her too. Uh, this left the unconscious Patterson in the room uh, while Burke and McDougal fought. And eventually McDougal left, uh, but did come back with Hare and uh, and Hare's wife, right? And at this point, Burke and Hare locked their wives out of the room and just murdered Patterson, just murdered the poor woman who'd fallen asleep at the table. And once again, bung the body in the tea chest after undressing it. Hare's wife even kept the dress, right? And and uh, and then the two men, they took this, uh, this new cadaver to Knox. But this time, however, they were actually asked questions, not by Knox, but one of Knox's assistants seemed to recognise Patterson and so asked Burke and Hare where they'd got this corpse from, seeing as it was still warm, right? Now, they told him that they'd bought uh, the corpse from someone else in town, this lady who had, uh, who had told them that Patterson had drunk herself to death, right? So she just, she just died from overdosing on alcohol, essentially. And this story seemed to satisfy the assistant, although, of course, Knox, you know, he didn't give two hoots. He was happy to take the body, no worries, and paid them uh, a princely eight pounds for it. He stored the body in whiskey for three months before dissecting it. I don't know if he maybe knew that it was hot property. I don't know if that he knew that oh, if I pull this bird out now, people are going to ask questions. But he didn't dissect the body straight away, which, which look, we don't know perhaps why, but there is certainly the suggestion that it was because he knew that if this body were recognised as a woman who had just recently gone missing after a night on the town, maybe some questions would be asked. So in any case, it was a while before uh, well, she, was in, she ended up on the operating table. Anyway. Um, after after a while, right, Brown, uh, the uh, Patterson's mate, the one who had run off, she come back. She came back to Burke to ask after Patterson, and Burke just lied through his teeth. He just said to her, "Oh no, mate, got no idea. I think she ran off to Glasgow with a travelling salesman or something." Whereas, of course, obviously, you know, she's marinating in uh, in whiskey in Knox's study, and just sort of goes to show that you know people could go missing at a time like this and never be seen, uh, never be seen again, and. You know, you 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 wouldn't know what happened to them. So very very scary, very very scary to think about that sort of thing. Anyway, the murders continued. Almost all of them were uh, they followed the same modus operandi, plied with whiskey until they were in, uh, insensible. Then they were suffocated, stuffed in the tea chest, and they were delivered to Knox. And many of them were lodgers at Hare's boarding house. He kind of used the used it as a place to gather stragglers or drifters, people who who weren't particularly well connected in Edinburgh and maybe wouldn't have people asking after them. Uh, people, there was an old woman, uh, and then her daughter. Sometimes, li- sometime later, there was a, a cinder gatherer named Effie who vaguely knew Burke. Used to sell him scraps of leather for his cobbling business. Um, and uh, another old woman who was lodged with Hare. These these people, they all met the, a grisly end with uh, with Burke and Hare. And uh, one time as well, there was this 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 one was quite incredible. One time, Burke he's out and about in the uh, uh, you know walking around the town one night, and he comes across a police constable right who is escorting a uh, a woman home. She's drunk as a lord, right? She's had far too much to drink, and he goes up to the cop and he says, "Oh, listen, mate." You know, he's playing the part of a good Samaritan. He says, oh, listen, I, you know, I can take her home for you. No worries. You know, you're a busy bloke. You're, you're a copy officer of the law. You've got to go and protect and serve whatever else. Let me take this bird home for you. It, uh, it won't be an issue. And the cop, who I don't know if it's his first night on the job, but he's just like, yeah, sure, mate, no worries. And just hands over this poor drunk bird to, uh, to, uh, to Burke, who, you know, doesn't take her home, of course. Instead, takes her back to Hare's and murders her. And he and, uh, and, he and Hare... Take her the the corpse to to Knox and it's good for another ten pounds. So there you go. Um, I mean, 
As I say, more or less the same story with all of these victims. There was the booze, the suffocation, the tea chest, then the 10 pounds, no worries. But the first, mur- the first murder that seemed to give these two maniacs any kind of pause, however, because they're just, they're just tearing through people left, right and centre, but there was a murder that they perpetrated that did seem to weigh a little heavier on their, on their consciences here. And this was in June in 1828. So they've been doing, again, since, since February, uh, January, February of that year, they've been murdering people. And once it gets to, it gets to June, right, there's an old woman, another old woman who's lodging at Hare's, uh, but she's doing it with her grandson. She's got her grandson in tow as well. Now, as ever, old woman murdered straight away, same way as all the other ones. There's the booze, the suffocation, everything else, right? But when apparently when it came to killing the child as well, they had second thoughts. I mean, n- not enough to, you know, not murder a child in cold blood, but apparently, you know, the last vestiges of any humanity that these men had did make their objections known as they did it. I mean, they still killed the kid. They still killed this poor kid. But look, I'm not in any way trying to excuse these two or anything of the sort, but all this murdering, it did at least take, it, it did seem to take something of a toll on their conscience, uh, on their consciences here because Burke later confessed to being completely unable to sleep at night without drinking himself into a stupor. He had to keep a candle burning all night long and even took to opium. Uh, in order to cope with the horror of his own deeds. But, I mean, look, for all his guilt, it didn't stop him, and certainly I'm not trying to excuse him, but it is, you know, I guess it's it's interesting to learn that it did take uh, it did take something of a toll on these two, especially Burke here, as you say, who had to drink himself to sleep every night. Um, the, the fact that he'd been, they'd been going and just senselessly murdering people like, like this for months and months. Anyway, this murder racket, it's, it's gone pretty well for the two of them, to be honest. Like, they're, uh, you know, they're working well together as, as, a, as a team, I guess, as, as this murder team, uh, making decent money, although they don't seem to have been able to hold on to the money too well, but they were making a lot of it. And uh, it was all it was all could have sort of, you know, gone swimmingly for these two for, for the first little bit. But then we come to late June, right? Late June in 1828, when the first, uh, the first cracks, the first fractures in this relationship begin to appear. Because in late June, Burke and McDougall, right, they left Edinburgh for a time. They went to, they went to Falkirk to visit McDougall's family. But when they returned, when they returned to Edinburgh, Burke noticed that Hare was wearing new clothes. Now, Hare, as I say, had been spending his money pretty freely, even this, all this new money that he'd been getting from Knox. And uh, Burke knew that he was was pretty skint and didn't wouldn't have had the money to uh, to be able to afford a new a new set of clothes here, right? So Burke suspected him of having gone solo into the murder business while he was away and ended up actually confronting Hare about it and saying, mate, what's going on here? Now, Hare denied it. He said, no, I hadn't killed anyone while Burke had been away, but Burke wasn't having any of it. So Burke marched down to Surgeon Square, went straight to Knox and asked if Hare had paid him a visit with a corpse recently. Now, Knox, not obviously, obviously not knowing what was going on here, he confirms, yes, he had. Hare had visited, uh, you know, not, not too long before by himself with, with a body and, and obviously had been paid for it. And so Burke went back to Hare and just slammed him one. The two ended up actually physically fighting over this. They came to blows. Imagine this, fighting with someone because he had the nerve to go behind your back in your lucrative murdering business, going solo, bloody undercutting you. Unbelievable. Anyway, the long and the short of it was that Burke moved out of Hare's boarding house with McDougal, but... As it turns out, this wasn't to be the end of their partnership. Eventually, after a couple of months or two, it did take a couple of months for them to reconcile, cool off a little bit. But uh, in in September or October, Burke started visiting Hare again. Didn't didn't move back into Hare's boarding house, but did start um did start visiting. And once once again, it wasn't long before they were back to their murderous ways. And 
One time uh, when uh, Burke was visiting, right, this is what sort of kicked things off for them again. Burke was visiting, hanging out with Hare, and a washerwoman came to the to the boarding house to do uh, to do some laundry. And as ever, Burke and Hare got her drunk, murdered her, and it was just like the old days, just like the old times of the two of them, off to Dr. Knox with the tea chest. Uh, once again, after, you know, a, a, a brief, a few months off here. So... Shortly thereafter, right, and this this is where stuff stuff starts getting even more unbelievable because this is this is ridiculous, right? Shortly thereafter, that once they you know they they're back back to their old ways here, after murdering this washerwoman, right, a relative of McDougal's visited from Falkirk, just like Burke and and McDougal had visited Falkirk. Now you know they were receiving visitors themselves, and Burke and Hare murdered her as well for another 10 pounds i mean what i mean look i know look, i know that some people aren't keen on the in-laws but bloody hell mate what is that about and the next murder after this one you know after murdering basically what was an in-law for burke the next murder saw burke and hair sail even close to the wind than ever before as they chose this time a beggar from the streets as their victim now this beggar his name was james wilson and he was he was a reasonably well-known character as well. He, he used to uh, put on street performance, you know, entertain passers-by, kids, whatever else. Um, and he walked with a characteristic limp due to the fact that his uh, his feet were slightly deformed. And, and this will be important later on. Uh, this is important detail to remember about him here. Anyway, Paul Wilson, he was tricked into coming back to Hare's boarding house with promises of whiskey. And uh, as ever, Burke and Hare got, tried to get him properly sozzled, but... Wilson didn't get as pissed as they thought he was, right? And so when they finally attacked him to attempt the murder, he fought back ferociously. Uh, Burke and Wilson actually had to lock themselves in the room with him, uh, kicking the key under the door so he wouldn't escape, and eventually finally managed to overpower and kill the poor bastard. But it was it was touch and go there for Burke and Hare for a while. Uh, one, of their, one of their wives uh, unlocked the room, let him out, and they went to deliver the corpse uh, to Knox, right? But when they did so, several of Knox's students said that they recognised uh, recognised the, the the corpses as being Wilson, right? Being being this this beggar that, that people knew, and uh, his deformed feet, right, only proved it further. People were able to very easily identify and recognise this bloke, and you know there wasn't anyone. They, they weren't listening to the people saying, "No, no, it's not him." Knox told them they were they were mistaken. But check this out, right? He obviously obviously Knox knew, even though he's he's there denying that you know that it's this beggar. Knox obviously knew that it was because after bu- after buying the corpse off a of Birkin hair, Knox dissected Wilson's corpse as soon as he could. Right. So normally you know he had other ones in storage, other ones waiting that may have decayed sooner. Right. But he. Uh, he dissected Wilson's corpse uh, as quick as could be because already people are talking about his disappearance. As I say, well-known character in the streets of Edinburgh, Knox must have felt the heat. And so before dissecting Wilson's body, Knox removed the head and the feet from the cadaver and he dissected the corpse ahead of other, you know, less, less fresh ones that would decay sooner. And if this is not a clear sign of him knowing that he was up to no good, I don't know what is. I mean, you know, you might be wondering why I'm even giving any credence to the idea that Knox had plausible deniability here. He, had, he absolutely did not. Um, and I don't want to spoil the ending. We'll, we'll come to what happened to Knox in due course, but I, I do want to sort of at least set up this idea that Knox was attempting to give himself uh, plausible deniability. Anyway. In murdering Wilson, Birkin here they Birkin here they came quite close uh, to getting in trouble, um, and uh, for once I'm actually quite pleased to say that it only got worse from there for these two because on the 31st of October 1828, Birkin Hare murdered 
their final victim. Burke lured an Irish woman named Margaret Doherty back to uh, where he was staying. Remember, he wasn't staying at Hare's boarding house anymore. Um, anyway, he lured this woman back to the boarding house and, and went off and fetched Hare, clearly planning another murder. However, at this other boarding house, there were some other lodgers named uh, James and Anne Gray. Um, and they were getting in the way. You know, they're making themselves a nuisance. They're, they're not sort of leaving them alone so they can do the deed. So Burke and Hare paid them to stay at Hare's instead. They gave him some money and gave him directions to Hare's boarding house to go and stay there for the night. And then they got in the source and their wives joined in too, the four of them, and poor Doherty as well, you know, getting pissed, singing, dancing, having a good time. And they were seen doing this by the greys, the lodgers that they'd sent off to Hare's, who returned briefly about 9pm to collect some things before leaving again. So there were witnesses that put Doherty with these four at that time, right? Later on in the evening, of course, Burke and Hare, they did the usual thing. They murdered Doherty, they suffocated her, hid her body in a pile of straw at the end of the bed. And this, happily, would be their undoing. Because the Greys returned the next day, and when Anne Grey wanted to go and retrieve some of her things from the room with the straw in it, Burke stopped her. Now, this, of course, raised her suspicion, and later when Burke had left the boarding house, the Greys, they crept into the room, they investigated further, and lo and behold, they found Doherty's corpse. They went straight to the cops. Um, they alerted McDougal on their way. McDougal stopped them, tried to bribe them, tried to offer them a lot of money in order to, uh, for them to not go and tell the police what, what they'd seen. And, and so knowing that they were in trouble, Burke and Hare quickly tried to shift the body took it straight to Knox and sold it, trying to trying to rid themselves of it. But the police had already gone to the boarding house. They'd already found Doherty's clothing there. And so now they're in big, big trouble. Burke and McDougal, they couldn't keep their story straight when questioned by the, uh, by the police. They were arrested straight away. And the next day, when uh, the police went to Knox's place with the Greys, they identified Doherty's corpse. The Greys were able to say, yep, she was when we saw singing, dancing, getting pissed with these other blokes there like that. And so as a result, Hare and his wife were also arrested and the jig was up. That was very much that. The four of them were held in custody to await their fate. Uh, their little murder racket finally broken up by James and Anne Gray, who were able to clearly pin uh, you know, this, this whole situation on them. And, of course, before one of the bodies, uh, with one of the bodies not having been disposed of via dissection. And I'll tell you this, the four of them did not fare well while being remanded either. They were held separately from one another in the police prisons and they were, uh, they, when they were questioned, they gave conflicting statements that clearly showed that they were talking out of their respective asses. They couldn't keep their stories straight. They couldn't keep their stories straight with each other, let alone, I mean, couldn't even keep their own stories straight with themselves, let alone with each other. So uh, the cops obviously knew that some funny buggers were going on here. Doherty's body was forensically investigated, and while the police surgeon actually couldn't confirm it, he suspected suffocation. Wasn't able to prove it. As I say, back then, you know, forensic technology wasn't equipped to do that sort of thing. But still, it did not look good for Burke and Hare and, of course, their wives as well. The police didn't take long to link the disappearance of James Wilson, the beggar, to the four of them as well. And so soon they were on the hook for multiple murders. Now, the cops, they were sure. They were absolutely certain, of course, there had been more victims too, but there was a total lack of evidence. There, there, I mean, that is to say, there were a total lack of dead bodies. They had very little to go on when it came to other murders. And of course, with these, uh, with the uh, with the four uh, accused people here just talking out their bums, they couldn't get a straight story out of them. But the police were certain that other people, of course, had uh, had been killed. And uh, you know, uh, when it comes to, I guess, the reason for their lack of certainty, this this lack of dead bodies. Dr. Knox was also questioned by the police, and this is why I was setting the stage with his, uh, you know, his attempting to uh, establish plausible deniability. I don't know how he managed to get away with this, right? I really don't. But the police decided after questioning him that he had committed no crime. 
And while he'd certainly acted enormously unethically by accepting these bodies that were brought to him without any question, he hadn't actually broken the law. And, and as a result, he was never charged. He wasn't brought before a court, although, as you'll discover, he didn't quite get off scot-free. There was some heat-seeking, laser-guided karma that, uh, that directed itself at old Dr. Knox before very much longer, as we'll come to. Anyway, back to Burke and Hare and their wives here. They seem to be in deep, big, big trouble, these four, uh, although the police were not confident that they'd be able to secure a conviction on the little evidence that they had. And as a result, they took a different tack. They approached Hare, they came to Hare, and they asked him if he would be interested in turning King's evidence, if he'd be interested in dobbing in his mate, uh, mate Burke in exchange for immunity from prosecution for both him and his wife. Now, there may be honour amongst thieves, but let me tell you this, there is apparently no honour amongst murderers, and Hare sold Burke up the river at a million miles an hour. He couldn't agree to this fast enough. Once he'd secure, once he'd secured this uh, this this deal, this King's Evidence deal, Hare immediately confessed to all of the murders, detailing how, when, where, and why that all happened, which of course is why we have this reasonably thorough, if a little inaccurate, uh, account of, of all of the all the murders that took place. Of course, you know, all been coloured by Hare, who seemed to want to reduce his own culpability, even with the immunity. And that's why, at the beginning of the show, I said that it's not possible for us to say with 100% accuracy that these things took place, but it is based on the testimony of, of Hare and some of the statements made by Burke as well, uh, you know, that, that we can sort of piece together the be- our best estimation of what took place. But remember, this, you know, will certainly never be known with 100% certainty at any point. Anyway, the confession... Here's testimony. The police now, very confident, very confident they're going to be able to secure convictions for both Burke and McDougall. Even though they've lost hair, both hair and his wife, they are confident they're going to get there. They're going to be able to nail uh, Burke and McDougall. And so the pair were formally charged with murder on the 4th of December, 1828, and their trial began around three weeks later on the 24th. It was a sensational, lurid case. The media had a field day with it. They're publishing garish and often fabricated reports of the murders as more and more details emerge. Rumours are going around, whatever else, and they're all getting published. And when the trial began, the whole thing had turned. It was an absolute, it was a farce. It was a media circus, right? A huge crowd gathered at, uh, at outside the courthouse and the gallery was immediately filled as soon as the doors opened. There was a crush of people trying to get inside and hundreds of cops actually had to be stationed outside the courthouse to keep the crowd under control because everyone, you know, everyone wanted to uh, to satisfy, to sticky beak, mate, to, uh, to rub a neck and, go, and, and see what was going on with this trial. And the trial unbelievably, was held all in one go. There were no breaks or there were no gaps, nothing. They were concerned about the legitimacy of the trial if they ever actually took a recess. So it ran through the night until the next morning. Started at 9am, ran all down the 24th and through to the 25th. Burke and McDougall uh, pled not guilty to the charge of murdering Doherty, but the prosecution had a list of 55 witnesses uh, to convince the jury otherwise. Not all of them were, the, not all of them were questioned, but the list had all sorts of people on it, uh, including... One of Knox's assistants, who confirmed that Burke and Hare, I suppose, had indeed sold Knox plenty of bodies, including Doherty's. Knox was never questioned again. He didn't. Uh, he, he wasn't dragged into the courtroom there. But uh, he was. Uh, you know, the testimony of one of his, his assistants was enough to uh, to put Burke and and Hare at the um, at the at the doctor's surgery. Um, but uh, the star witness, of course, was Hare. 
He took to the stand and he began to spin this long, convoluted yarn about how Burke had murdered Doherty with McDougall's help. He painted himself as being uninvolved in this particular murder and rather hands-off to the uh, you know to the rest of it as well. And he wasn't pushed on the point either by the prosecution. The prosecution didn't ask him about other murders that the two had committed or anything like that because, he, I mean, he'd made the immunity deal, of course, so there was no point in the prosecution coming after him. You know, after all of these witness for, witnesses for the prosecution, none were brought forth for the defence, and despite a spirited two-hour speech from Burke and McDougall's defence lawyer, it was no good. And at around half past nine on the 25th, over 24 hours since the beginning of the trial, it all continued uninterrupted. I really can't believe they didn't take a break at any point. The jury found Burke guilty, and uh, they did return a not-proven uh, verdict for McDougall, but uh, but Burke was found guilty and the judge sentenced him to death. And apparently having absolutely zero chill, here's what the judge said while passing sentence. <clears throat> Your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized. And I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crime. So how is that the judge actually wanted Burke to be dissected as his victims had been before him? Amazing. Anyway, after the trial, uh, McDougall was released, right? Uh, After having a a not proven uh, verdict found, uh, she was released. But a mob that was unhappy with this particular verdict rounded on her, forced her to flee into a police station nearby for safety. And while the mob were held off by the police, McDougall escaped out a back window and she fled from Edinburgh at top speed. She became completely lost to history at that point we don't know what happened to her the last thing we know that she did was uh, was clamber out of a back window of an edinburgh police station and uh, very wisely you would say she made herself scarce and was never heard from again after that point and similarly Hare's wife margaret also gave history the slip after being released from police custody she decided to flee to ireland and while she was waiting for a ship to take her back to Ireland, she was recognised. She was recognised uh, after having travelled to Glasgow. And uh, just as with McDougall, a mob rounded on her and forced her to flee once again into a police station to seek shelter. And once again, the, pol- the police, they protected her and even escorted her onto a ship all the way to Belfast. And there, just like with McDougall, she disappeared. Very prudent, you'd think. Very prudent. Both these women slipping away into obscurity. I mean, they were none too popular after their association with the with the two famous murderers and uh, probably made a very good call in, uh, in disappearing like this. And Hare actually attempted to do exactly the same thing. He was released from custody on the 5th of uh, February in 1829. There was a legal battle after the trial. Uh, for uh, to to that sought to overturn his immunity deal, they actually wanted to uh, to undo it. The family of James Wilson were the ones behind the beggar. They were the ones behind trying to actually unpick this immunity deal. They were ultimately unsuccessful, however, and so uh, Hare was released. Uh, he left Edinburgh on a mail coach, wearing a disguise, uh, making for the English border, heading south. However. He was recognised. After arriving in Dumfries, he was recognised. And once again, people looked to mete out a little bit of mob justice on him. The police intervened. They certainly didn't muck around when it came to protecting these people. And in order to distract the crowd, they actually sent off a decoy carriage that they uh, they you know made to look like he was inside, uh, while he was actually bundled off to a police prison for his own protection. The mob, however, they soon realised they'd been tricked. They rounded on the prison, more or less besieging it. You know, they're chucking stones through the window, bloody breaking stuff left, right and centre. And around 100 cops had to be deployed to break up the crowd. But then 
then, before the sun rose, right, a police escort took Hare out of the police prison, out of Dumfries, dropped him off on the highway and told him to told him to make himself scarce, told him to make his own way from there. And, much like Helen McDougall and much like Margaret Hare, William Hare made uh, what has to be called the wise decision to become lost from history altogether. To this day, it's completely unknown what happened to him or the two women. We have no idea what became of these three after this affair. Maybe they received some measure of justice for their participation in these crimes. Maybe they avoided the consequences of their action by living lives of total obscurity after this. We just don't know. We do, however, know the end to the story, uh, to the, the stories of both Dr. Robert Knox and, of course, William Burke. Robert Knox, as I mentioned, he didn't quite get off scot-free, despite having never really getting, you know, despite never really getting his day in court. He went from being a respected and preeminent member of Edinburgh's scientific community to being shunned and scorned and rejected by more or less everyone, from colleagues to commoners. An inquiry found that he bore no responsibility for the murders perpetrated by Burke and Hare. I do not know at all. I have no explanation to how he managed to uh, string that plausible deniability out so far, but he did manage to get away with that. But still, there was one court in which he was found guilty, the court of public opinion. He had to deal with angry mobs burning him in effigy. He had to deal with being absolutely hated and despised by everyone around him. I mean, you know, he must have known that something illicit was going on, and it's not surprising that people turned on him in this way. Before long, he was forced to resign his position. He was iced out by his former colleagues. He ended up leaving Edinburgh with his reputation in tatters, and his career never recovered. He was struck from the Royal College of Surgeons. He was banned from giving lectures. And he also, somehow, in some way, managed to double down on being a real nasty piece of work, because in his later life, he was a strong proponent of scientific racism, and he published many theories that supported his ideas. Obviously, this guy just didn't know when to quit. And so, all of these earlier achievements I talked about, you know, the, the achievements as a pioneer of anatomy, they are now thoroughly overshadowed by the fact that he egged on a pair, a pair of murderous maniacs and then spent the back half of his life looking for a scientific way to be very, very racist. So... He ended up working in a hospital in England, maintaining a small private practice until his death in 1862. But for all his contributions to the science of anatomy, he is known today for his morally bankrupt association with the murderers Bur- uh, Burke and Hare and his scientific racism, rather than anything positive that he contributed to the world in his early career. And I have to say, it does very much feel like the legacy that he deserves. Finally, of course, there's William Burke, who you'll remember was sentenced to die. While his wife McDougall and his former associate Hare uh, and, and, and Hare's wife Margaret did manage to get away, there was no such reprieve for Burke. And on the 28th of January in 1829, a crowd of up to 25,000 people assembled in Edinburgh to watch Burke meet his fate on the gallows. People had rented out the rooms of the building, the buildings that overlooked the place of execution. Demand was so high, everyone, everyone wanted to see this take place. And Burke was led up onto the scaffold had the noose placed around his neck, and he was executed that very morning, just as the judge had ordered. But it didn't stop there. It did not stop there. Remember how I said the judge had suggested that Burke's corpse be dissected and his, and his skeleton preserved? Guess what happened? Burke's corpse was taken to the University of Edinburgh, where none other then Alexander Monroe himself gave a public dissection which was so popular 
that there was a riot outside thanks to how many people wanted to get inside to see it take place. And Monroe put on quite a performance during it as well. It said at one point he dipped a quill in Burke's blood and wrote a message with it. But wait, there's more. The story goes, and I'm not sure that this is true, but the story goes that Burke's skin was tanned and used to bind a book and make a calling card case, which are still on display even today. And again, I don't know if that's true, but here's something that definitely is, something that you will find utterly, utterly unbelievable. Remember how the judge suggested that Burke's skeleton be preserved for posterity so that people would remember his crimes? To this very day, if you visit the Anatomical Museum at the University of Edinburgh, you will find, believe it or not, the skeleton of William Burke, the notorious murderer, grinning at you from within a glass case. Almost 200 years after he, like his victims, was killed, laid out on an anatomist's table and dissected. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Birkenhead. Good to have some horrible murder back on the uh, back on the agenda here. Thanks so much once again to Dave Lawrence for uh, for sending in this topic suggestion. And, and certainly, again, invitations are open. I'd love to hear from you and hear what suggestions you've got for me. Got a big, long list, and I do sort of cherry-pick, uh, you know, the ones that uh, take my fancy from as the weeks go on. So if you'd like to add to the list, please do. Halfhousehistory.net, there's a contact form there, of course. And you'll find links there to, subs- to the subscribe to the show. You can also support the show on Patreon if you'd like to do that. Patreon.com slash History. A range of benefits offered, a range of different tiers. Uh, if you want early access to the show, uncut episodes. So you can listen to all my farts and burps, uh, or you could uh, perhaps come become an executive producer of the show if you stick around uh, long enough. So uh, thank you to all the people who are supporting the show, and thank you to you for listening as well, of course, as I always say. Great to have your company week in and week out, and uh, it's always lovely to hear from people as well. Keep those emails coming with feedback, suggestions, whatever else. Always uh, always a joy to hear from the listeners, so thank you for uh, thank you for tuning in uh, each week. Anyway, that is that for this week, of course. Thanks so much for being part of the show, and I'll see you again next week for more Half Hours History, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, as ever. This one comes to us from Redditor Chuck underscore S, and a very pertinent question it is too. Why is anatomy called a life science when you only dissect people who are dead? <laughs>